Well, good morning. Uh, much love to you all. Uh, welcome back. Hopefully, if you can make your way back, that would be fantastic. Uh, we're going to continue to sink into our time together. Uh, my name is Wally. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, connect with you. I'm the teaching pastor here for Walker Harbor and um, thrilled to be with you all. Uh, we have a lot of ground to cover, uh, which isn't new, correct? Um, that's kind of the way we roll. Uh, so we're going to want to dig in to this. Um, uh, thank you all for stepping in to uh, the way you have in responding as we uh, do to uh, the, the fire that took place in Westtown at Wilson Apartments and just the way in which this community, what a gift, what good news it is to step in and say we want to participate in uh, loving our community. So that along with the blankets and the way uh, that our kids get to step in and very practically love the community as well. It's such a gift and it's beautiful. Super, super grateful for that. Um, we have lots more. The, the Easter egg hunt is just a really cool way for us to be present with uh, like the city as they do this thing. And if you have not participated in this Easter egg hunt, it's an hour that will do this thing on that Saturday, 11 to 12, and this thing is just humming. And there are just like thousands, literally, of people typically uh, that will gather at this thing, and it is just, it's beautiful chaos, uh, if, if you will. I mean, it's the, like kids, they would say the good kind of chaos. Um, <laughs> so um, lots of fun to be able to be at Volunteer and just help uh, people have a good time and for us to be able to connect and serve and do that. So these are all really, really fun, good, beautiful ways for us um, to serve and be present with the, the community at large, if you will. Okay, um, what I would love to do is I'd love to say uh, a word of prayer as we kind of step into the teaching time, and we're going to continue. We've been in the gospel according to this fella named Matthew uh, for the last uh, few months, and we're going to continue doing that through the remainder of this year, and, and we're moving uh, in many, many ways. And so I want to say a word of prayer, and then I want to give a little bit of a recap of where we've been just in the last couple months that'll move us into this morning, and then... I, I mean, often people say buckle up because we're going to go, no, 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 no. What kind of community are we? Unbuckle because maybe you're going to have to stand. Maybe you're going to have to do laps around the chairs. I don't know. Um, but if you won't, I will. Uh, so I'm, and I'm ready and we're going to get after it because um, we have to. The story calls us to respond in some really fantastic ways. So let's pray. Uh, gracious God, we bless you for the gift of right here, right now, the invitation and opportunity we have to gather as your body, the church, uh, which is people. It's those who uh, say yes to what you are up to, what you're doing in and through us and in this world, and we want to participate. We want to follow you in being good news and pouring out love and grace and compassion and mercy and walking in the ways of truth and love. Uh, that is our hope, that is our desire. And um, as we sink into the scriptures, into this particular story, may the meditation and posture of my heart and the words of my mouth bring honor and glory to you. And may we have open hearts and open minds to what you are saying to each of us, but also collectively to us as a community. And may we respond to your heart this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And amen, amen, amen. Okay, so quick recap uh, we've, uh, where we've been just over the last couple of months. We followed Jesus as he hiked up what Matthew calls a mountain, but it's this thing. <laughs> so Matthew calls it a mountain, and then Luke, though, tells these stories uh, or these teachings, this teaching of Jesus, and he calls this a plain. So Matthew calls it a mountain, Luke calls it a plain, and it's an in-between. 
It's a foothill, technically, but now Matthew and Luke have very specific reasons why they have an agenda for why they do this. Matthew wants you to think of Moses going up on a mountain, coming down a mountain with the commands, the law, the Torah, the instructions of the divine. So he wants to see, wants you to see Jesus as the new Moses um, giving this instruction. And Luke, Luke's um, got a frame for his writing, and it's about the poor. He is specifically writing to or in, in talking mostly about how Jesus connects with the poor. So he is writing, and when he says a plane, constantly everything Luke is doing in his writing is trying to uh, level the playing field, if you will. He's trying to bring things down and saying, Jesus is standing face to face with you. He's interacting and meeting people right where they are. So even in his language, he's like, ah, plain, because we want to bring things down on a level playing field. It's actually fantastic literary device that Luke does. Um, but it's beautiful as uh, what is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Here, Matthew then, Sermon on the Plain, Luke calls it. Um, but it's this, uh, if I would give us some sort of summation of this Sermon on the Mount, it would be God meets us right where we are, as we are. And then when we respond to God meeting us right where we are, as we are, we in turn will meet others right where they are and love them the way that God loves them. It's kind of this movement of this Sermon on the Mount. And then there's all these specifics, uh, invitations and challenges to this um, that we get to dig into. Then Jesus comes down this foothill, he walks down and he begins to, and this is so beautiful, practice what he just preached. He's going to live out, show right then, he comes down this foothill and he begins to do that by uh, pouring out love and healing to all kinds of people, specifically those who cry out and the least of these, if you will, or the least likely, he begins to do this, enact this uh, for these people. In fact, there's a Roman centurion, a Roman centurion, who cries out on behalf of his servant, and he actually says to Jesus, whoa, 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 I think you already have dialed into this long distance thing, and I think you can heal him from long distance. You don't have to come to my house to do this. I think you can just say the word, and he will be healed. And Jesus goes, wow, that's stunning. Your faith, your trust in me absolutely amazes me. And he does. He's healed. And so we have this thing, but you're like a Roman centurion. What's he doing? This actually gives us a picture, a picture of what is coming. Jesus is inviting all people, including non-Jewish Gentiles, into this trust, which would be seen in that time as very, very radical. And it might just get you killed uh, by the insiders who want to be on the inside and don't think others should be on the inside. And so if you start including others that we don't think you should include, then we might have to do something about that. Hint, hint, that's heading towards Easter. Anyways, then Jesus is going to hop in a boat and head to the other side of the lake, Sea of Galilee, and he promptly takes a nap in order to avoid talking to the person sitting next to you. You know, like when you get on a plane, you're like, I don't want to say... And you, and you pretend to sleep, or maybe you really do go to sleep, or you pretend to read a book, or maybe you do read a book, but I don't want to talk to the person next to you. They get on a boat, and Jesus goes and takes a nap because he's tired of these people. Um, I, don't, I don't know. It's my commentary. I don't know that that's the case. But he takes a nap. In the midst of a nap, a storm comes up onto the boat, and all of a sudden, then the disciples wet their tunics, and they freak out because of the storm, and they say, Jesus, ah, oh, and they wake him up, and they're like, you got to do something about this, and he goes, oh, you people of little faith, what's your deal? And then he speaks calm to the chaos of the storm. He speaks over it and calms it, to which the disciples say, whoa, what kind of man is this? And then they land at their location, their destination, and their destination and the location in which they land on the other side of the lake, that's where we're going to pick up the story because it's a whoa. What are they doing here kind of moment? So we'll go to Matthew chapter 8, 
is where we'll be. We'll call them chapters and verses because that's what they give us. Uh, but the story moves along. Verse 28, we'll begin there. When he arrived at the other side of this lake in the region of, take your pick, uh, Gadarenes, Gergesenes, Gerasenes, take your pick and we'll get there and why. They, different scholars call which one. And these are very different, these are different cities within there, but why they throw them up. But you go there, two demon-possessed men come running from the tombs and met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. One, this is very fascinating hospitality team they have, correct? <laughs> like, hi, uh, two demon, but, and we're going to get there, but we, before we get that uh, point, I want to look into this region known as the Decapolis. This is a region they're at called the Decapolis, which means 10 cities. It means 10 cities, and it's found here. So Decapolis means 10 cities, and it's found here. So we'll go to a map, and you're going to have the Decapolis is all on this side of our map here. And you could go with, depending, and again, scholars are going to be all over, but if you went Damascus up top, I mean, this so far, they would say these 10 cities, Damascus, uh, Kanatha here, Hippos, Hippus, uh, Susita, same thing, we'll get there. Dion, Rafana, Gadara, and there you go. There's one of them. Pela, Scitopolis, Betshan, we'll get there. Garissa, and Philadelphia. These, these are the 10 cities. Again, there, there are some other ones in there that, oh, we're going to include that, not include that. You go ahead and play scholar and figure that one out. Um, but we're going to look at these things. But this region, so here's the sea or lake of Galilee. So they went across, and so now they went southeast is where they find themselves in this region, and that's a big deal. Next uh, map, just to give us an idea, again, it, it goes way down, but it actually goes up, and you have all this different region, and it's all really, really fascinating uh, when you get into where they are and what they're doing. So, when it comes to the actual city, when you go, what is it, Gadarenes, Gergesenes, Gerasenes, what's the deal with that? It's kind of like if someone were to say to you, hey, I'm going to Illinois, you would assume they're going to Chicago. Huh? See how we did that? And if you go, oh, yeah, so I was out in uh, California, you go, oh, so you think of Los Angeles, so that our head goes there. And so, it, it, that's kind of what's happening as they go, well, then it must be the Gadarenes because it's a really popular, important city, or Gerasenes, or Gergesenes. Like, we're going to pick that region because everyone knows that, so we'll just say that. But if you actually, and when scholars do the geographical, when they go, let's look at what that would mean to travel and be there, and the story that unfolds, and how that geographically and contextually would unfold, then we actually, scholars then go, well, likely what the city that they are spending their time in or around here is Hippos slash Susita, which is, looks like this. And you can see, like from the rains, you go see where it would be, and you're like, because those other cities are actually far enough from the lake that you would go, what, you wouldn't land and all of a sudden have an interesting hospitality team greet you like that if you were in those cities. But if you were in Susita Hippos, you understand, oh, you could quickly be met by some folks there. So next slide, give you an idea of a little bit right over the hill. So this, these are some remains of Hippos, Susita. Uh, next slide, uh, to give you an idea again where it sits up and how it is, and it's really quite something, and it's likely that they landed in this place, to which takes us to we need some context around the Decapolis, that will, and I'm going to give you a two-minute version of a really significant time in history that paints a huge thing, but we can't dive into it uh, a whole bunch, so we'll just kind of go fast. Um, around 334 BCE, Alexander the Great, remember him from school? conquered, resettled, and Hellenized, made it Greek in, in, in the culture and everything, Hellenized much of the known world, including this region. After his death, the Ptolemies ruled for a hundred years, followed by the Seleucids, both of which were Hellenized groups, though. Then in 168 BCE, the Seleucid ruler Antiochus Epiphanes IV 
targets Jewish worship. He's trying to bring these groups together and he's like, well, what we'll do is we'll target Jewish worship practices and we'll try and eliminate that because then we'll be able to tie this whole Hellenized group together. So he targets them. He goes to the temple in Jerusalem and he then builds an altar to the god Zeus and he sacrifices some pigs on the altar in the Jewish temple. This is referred to as the abomination that causes desolation, if you've heard that. About a year after this, a Jewish fellow named Judah, his nickname is The Hammer, well done. He was not a WWE or F or wrestler, whatever those things are, uh, but his Judah, The Hammer, Maccabeus. He leads a revolt to what they did here. And in 164 BC, the Maccabees, this group of people that followed Judah the Hammer, they cleanse and rededicate the temple, which is known as the Maccabean Revolt. And this Jewish victory, if you will, is still celebrated today. They call it Hanukkah. It's celebrating this victory. Although some Jews in this time then did become Hellenized, animosities continued between these kind of different cultures for the next 100 years. Then in 63 BCE, Pompey took Judea, so took this Jewish region though, and they took it for Rome in 63 BCE. And with it, the Greeks settled in the Decapolis, these 10 cities, and they inspired and shared Roman customs and culture and really solidified that. So there you go. It was about two minutes and we summed up a really massive, important part of history. Uh, now, these 10 Gentile cities would enjoy the protection and sophistication of Rome in what was to them, in this area, a rather backward Judea, where they're like, we don't get your practices, but we're gonna, we now have this Greco-Roman thing and we're taking over in this way. In return for doing this, though, Rome would help protect, they would help Rome protect the lucrative trade that would go through this uh, very eastern frontier. Now, only one of these 10 cities was on the western side of the Jordan River. Bet-Shan was the Hebrew name, Bet-Shan, which means house of tranquility or house of rest. Uh, but they, the Greeks, renamed it Scatopolis. So Scatopolis, so I, uh, with my highlighter, circled it for you. You're welcome. Uh, so you get this idea. It's the only one on the western side of the Jordan River. And this is where I have to like pause and I had to take out like all sorts of fun um, because we wouldn't be able to get into it. But maybe, maybe there's some people that would want to go to Israel at some point and we could dive into this and we might be able to do something that is, oh, heart, just, oof. But because maybe those people are here, um, we don't want to wreck it for them. <laughs> so the rest of you, sorry, you don't get to see that. And we're not going to dive into that. Which you can just take as Wally just saved us 15, 20 minutes. <laughs> there you go. You're welcome. So now, this Scatopolis, Bet-Shan, though, here's the thing on where it is. Some scholars believe this to be the distant country that Jesus references in his prodigal son parable in which the younger son went and fed the swine in a distant country because Greeks ate pork and they were fine with sacrificing pigs. And wild living, as it's called there in that parable, was very commonplace in Scythopolis. So they, they, they some believe, understand, oh, this is the place that they wander to. That's just fun, good time uh, thing. So that's just a small slice of context to understand this region is very Greco-Roman, very, very different than your poor Jewish village. So what you need to take away, the accomplice is Greek, fully Roman province, and Jesus, Jesus and his disciples are Jewish, which means they unequivocally do not go here, except Jesus does. Because either he's bold or maybe he's crazy. And if you are a teenager, like most of the disciples are understood to be, or maybe a young 20-something like Peter is understood to be, then what you do is you wet your tunic yet again when you all of a sudden find yourself landing on the shore here. What? 
these boys would be like, mom and dad are going to be so mad if we tell them we came here. They're going to, you can't do that. And then, all the more, they're met by what kind of hospitality team is greets them? Two demon-possessed men. Welcome to our area. Now, personally, I just love this. When you're reading, and again, you get lost in the movement of the scriptures, the movement from the furious swirling storm of the sea to these two men who have a furious swirling storm inside them. To be, I just think that is incredibly poetic. We see, um, and, and if you want, and I just throw this, if you want to grab coffee, if you're like, hey, can we grab coffee and talk about the parallel between the stories of the swirling on the sea into this demon possession whole thing and how it parallels Jonah's book? Woo! But that's a for a coffee another time. Um, it's really quite something. But this story, think it moves from turbulent wind and waves of the sea to turbulent wind and waves of the emotions and actions of these two men. The chaotic waters in creation to the forces of evil within the human, both of which have been thrust onto Jesus and his band of mostly teenage fellas. It's clear here, though, what we quickly learn is in the modern world, we struggle to properly, appropriately name this kind of emotional, mental, or physical turmoil. Because when we say two demon-possessed men, how many of us all of a sudden have a picture of the Tasmanian devil in our head? That's not helpful at all. But that's what we tend to go to, right? Drooling, slobbering. What? When we hear that, but it's not. Over-dramatizing the life of Jesus often leads to people either mentally locking the power of Christ back there in history or we make it some sort of kind of fantasy. It's possible that these two men are suffering from addiction or emotional or physical trauma, so they're not Tasmanian devil-like at all. I was talking recently with a lady who um, leads a, a recovery and support ministry, and she said one of the biggest problems that they have in trying to uh, serve people well and have this ministry be available is so many people call it, oh, but that's for those people. Those people, you mean the people who are recovering from something or need support in something? Well, that sounds like all of us, by the way. But she said the majority of the people that come to their ministry come from other churches because um, that kind of messy isn't welcome in their church. So they sneak over to this one so that they can do so without being judged or pushed out. What's going on here? Um, we're going to come back to this, but I want us to see that this kind of, when we say demon possession, this was very common, certainly in the ancient world, the way they understood it. This is just people that are struggling in some sort of physical, emotional, spiritual way, certainly, And they get shoved to the way the storyteller says the tombs, which is just a way of saying we don't want them around us. It's language to get us there. We're going to keep going. We're going to circle back to that verse 29. We only got through one verse. So, uh, what do you want? These people say, what do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? So let's recall the question, the disciples on the boat in the swirling storm, what they asked of him when this whole thing was swirling and then he called calm on it. What kind of man is this? This was the question they had when he calmed the seas, right? The storm. They said, what kind of man is this? The disciples, his students, have witnessed Jesus healing several people, calming a furious storm, which gets them to only begin to wonder the bigness of Jesus. 
And now for the first time in Matthew's gospel, someone calls Jesus the son of God. And who is it? Two demon-possessed guys. This reveals what a huge mistake it would be to, dismay, di, to um, dismiss them as raging, slobbering Tasmanian devils because they are aware and convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, which N.T. Wright, our friend Tom Wright, says the best explanation for that phrase here is this. Regard him as the one, the Son of God, would be to regard him as the one who would judge the world and put all wrongs to rights, which is why the demons suspect they are in trouble. So these two men have a better beat on who Jesus is than his own students, who are the ones who have been following, listening to, and watching Jesus in action. But for me, this is a prime example of why I do not understand elements of the institutional church. Like when the church is more concerned with how one is dressed and when they function like the praise police by domesticating expression within worship? What? You mean the people who follow this Jesus who meets these people and we're going well, to be sanitized and we're going to domesticate this Jesus. I don't get that. I don't get that. I don't get that. These two demon-possessed men hold a reverence and awe for Jesus that has them backpedaling and pleading for him not to basanizo them, torture them. But that's the word we almost often trade torture or torment. Basanizo, go ahead and say basanizo. Basanizo. To vex, what a great word. To vex with pain in order to get at the root of a person. And it describes a black silicious stone that is rubbed on gold and silver to test its quality. Jesus, have you come here to get at our root? Have you come to test the quality of who we are? Because we know if you do that, that the darkness and death within us cannot remain there. These demons recognize that. So these two men know that Jesus is after the heart. Jesus is revered as dynamic by the chaos, which makes me wonder how the church, people who followed this Jesus, ever became known as starch, static, and a stiff institution. What? In my years of being a Christian and a pastor, hands down the most common thing people assume of Christians and pastors is that they are dull, they're judgmental, and they're irrelevant. How did we get here? You see the leap. We follow this Jesus who has these demon-possessed men come to him, and he interacts with them, and all of a sudden, though, what the quote, Christians are, you know, boring and judgmental, and irrelevant, and starched, and static. Yet we find these two wild men revering the electric, bold, and powerful person of Jesus, which takes me to an interview I heard with Tom York and Johnny Greenwood of the band Radiohead. It's exactly where you were going, correct? Great. So they, I was listening to this interview, and uh, Radiohead, so this is a musical band in the 1900s. <laughs> they, yeah, okay. Um, they were asked about writing a musical score for a film. Specifically, if they, they were you know, like, how is your process in writing a musical score for a film? And they said, did you just watch a scene and then simply try and mirror the scene with music? They responded with a question, which then I, I mean, when I was listening to this thing, you should have, I mean, almost went off the car. Yeah! They respond with a question, just great rabbinic way, beautiful people. Uh, and so uh, their question was, does an actor simply mirror the one they are in a scene with? No. They are in it. 
So they respond and react to the person, which is what we do in putting a music to a scene. We respond and we react to the energy and the passion that is both within and expressed by these characters. Oh, oh preach, Radiohead. Now, because of the idea of a static and starched church would either have to ignore or domesticate and sanitize the wild man Jesus for it to function like a waiter at a country club. Does the church know the wild Jesus who meets these two men in the Decapolis? How could the church be considered dull, insipid, and uninspired? We are the people who are responding to and being charged by the wild man Jesus, correct? This is the Jesus who meets us right where we are, just as we are with unmatched compassion, but whose power and presence confront the darkness of the heart and transforms the smallness of the mind. It's here where each person comes face to face with a choice because Jesus' love is a force, but his love is never forced on us. You catch that. What will the response be to the power and presence of the wild man, Jesus? Well, let's revisit our friend Tom. N.T. Wright says it this way. Wherever Jesus went, people were in awe of him. There was no sense, as in much of the world today, that he was just one teacher among others, one religious leader to be coolly appraised. He was a force to be reckoned with. You might follow him or you might be scared stiff of him, but you could not ignore him. I think Matthew is brilliant for placing this story here because we need help extracting from us the temptation to see Jesus as a nice religious rabbi giving good sermons on how to love God and neighbor or just be this kind, tender-hearted physician healing sick people. Instead, we get a furious storm meeting the furious storm within these two men. Who, how our societies too often then what? Marginalize such people? And yet Jesus confronts these people with power while still holding an unbelievable, overwhelming grace and mercy for them. Verse 30 to 32. Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs. Well, we know we're not, we know we're in Roman country then, right? Was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, what? Words create new worlds. Okay, fine, go. So they came out, went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down to the steep bank in the lake and died in the water, which the Jewish people understand the water to be the abyss. So, as a callback to uh, last week, once again, Jesus is speaking a word, go, which creates a new world for these two men. So, also, let's hold this story in light of the much larger story taking place in and through the person of Jesus the Christ. Jesus does to these demons what he will do to all of sin and death, sending them plummeting into the abyss. A death that leads to life. This story is a micro of the soon-to-be macro, a particular example of the cosmic unveiling. Certainly two of the most unnerving details in the story for a Jew Jewish audience is what? The uncleanness of the demon-possessed people and pigs. Man. So, verse 33 and 34. Those tending the, so pig farmers, those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all this. Just take the wording. They went into town, reported all this, including what happened to the demon-possessed men. That's secondary. That's odd. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. 
First, we notice how the pig farmers say, well, let's tell you what happened to our pigs. Oh, and by the way, some demon-possessed guys, uh, the demons left them. This story ends with people asking Jesus to leave them. So we have to raise the question, do these people not view Jesus as good news? Why, why would that be? What we don't hear these people say is, look, the two demon-possessed men have been set free. How amazing. Instead, they ask Jesus to leave. A couple responses to why that may be. The ultimate outsider to these Gentile people, this Jewish rabbi, has arrived in your town and is casting out evil and death. Do you accept him or ask him to leave? And this is the Decapolis, so it's Roman territory. The lifestyle is Greco-Roman. It's luxury, it's wealth, it's comfort, and now this Jewish outsider just ran their economic interest into the lake. Are you with me? For these people then, that might matter more to them than having two people get set free. Oh, but you ruined our economy. And that's more important than people being healed and loved and brought near. Thanks, but no thanks, Jesus. Freedom at the expense of wealth and luxury is just too costly. Ouch. This story confronts us with a number of deeply challenging questions. Jesus teaches and models how true and lasting life is on the other side of a thousand little deaths. The layers of sin and death get piled on top of the image of the divine in each one of us. The extraction of death is freedom, but tearing a leech off your heart is really, really painful. Correct? Which raises the question... Question, are there areas in my life that become uncomfortable when Jesus comes near? That's one. Again, let's notice how this story began. Jesus intentionally traveled across the lake and into no-no land to offer an invitation to the outsider. And two wild men came from the tombs in order to meet Jesus. Jesus didn't chase them down or force them into submission. They are the ones that named who Jesus is. They had a reverence underneath their uncleanness for Jesus. Then Jesus confronts their swirling chaos with unmatched power and unfathomable grace, which raises some questions for us. First, how will we respond to the wild man Jesus? What's our response to this wild man? I have been reading the story over and over, inviting it to sink in, which has led for me to some very unsettling conviction. Now, for a number of reasons, a global pandemic being first among them, the last couple years have been really, really stuck for me. The most recent New Wine series, for those that were there, it was Oxygen to My Soul. A room beyond institution and free for wrestling. It's space for deeper honesty, vulnerability, and pleading for the more of life. That, along with this story, have once again convicted me of my calling. I know I am living my calling when I am following the wildness of Jesus, the Christ spirit, and it's stirring and spurring me along, and when I am calling the church out of the institution and into the neighborhoods, the coffee houses, and loving people. That's when I'm alive. Inviting the church to live at the intersection of Christ and creativity. Or, like the brilliant 1997, we're going to go back to the 1900s again, the Apple campaign that says this. Here's to the crazy ones. The misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs and the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them, about the only thing you can't do is ignore them.
because they change things. They push the human race forward, and while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. This commercial featured the likes of Albert Einstein, Bob Dylan, John Lennon, Muhammad Ali, Gandhi, and Martin Luther King Jr. The church, which is the people who are the body of the wild Christ in the world, should be first found on this list. Because we are living spirit-led wild lives. No, not juvenile and zany lives, but like Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr., immensely creative in pouring out love to all people, especially those people, with an innovative love and compassion. I simply cannot hide from the world, but this pushes me to step into the world in order to offer the love of Christ to all people. So the eccentric I'm going to call him eccentric Apostle Paul. He got under my skin this week. I've been doing a study in uh, the letter to the Corinthians for fun, because it is fun. His second letter to this incredibly messy and wild church, I, I literally think of Corinth, that city. You, it would be kind of like your Las Vegas. We're like, Ooh, whatever happens in Vegas. Yeah, yeah, Corinth actually just makes Vegas so pristine. <laughs> Um, so his second letter is messy and wild church. He, it feels like a partner to this wild man, Jesus in the Decapolis region, because in Paul's calling the church to live in the hope of Christ through the transforming work of the spirit, Paul talks about moving out of the old stiff, static ways and into the new second Corinthians three, 12 to 18. Therefore, Paul says, since we have such a hope, a dynamic hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who had put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses has read a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? I, I, we don't, what? Freedom. We don't understand the freedom he's talking about all too well. We, I mean, we should and we can, certainly, but when we think of the freedom is I get to do what I want when I want and have what I want when I want it, that's not freedom. That's freedom to possess. What Paul's talking about is freedom because we are possessed by the Christ spirit. Very different. I don't have a whole, okay. And we all who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. <laughs> Paul, come on! Just working it. And Anyone nervous? Uncomfortable? I hope so. He is like working it. What does this lead to? Verse 16 and 17 of chapter 5. And then we get to, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, in light of all this, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here, which takes us back to Jesus on the shore in the Decapolis being greeted by a couple of wild men. That was Jesus' destination. That's why he went to the outside center known as the Decapolis. Where are the disciples in this story? Anyone been wondering? We, we see Jesus. Where are the disciples? There's no mention of them. My guess is they're hiding behind the boat in their pea-soaked tunics. I don't know, but the wild ways of Jesus are showing them how the poor in spirit and those who cry out are met with a radical, dynamic love that calls out the chaos and unveils the radiant spirit deep within all people. 
To follow the wild ways of Jesus is not easy. In fact, it's deeply uncomfortable. And for far too long, for far too many people, the response to the wild man Jesus has been this. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. You make me uncomfortable, Jesus. You're a bit too eccentric. You're a bit wild. So we need to domesticate you, sanitize you, because it's too disruptive for our Greco-Roman slash our American dream. You disrupt that. And this takes me to last Sunday after the gathering. A handful of us went upstairs and had some lunch and talked about the gifts of the divine placed within us to move us and send us into the world. What stories, is what we talked about, have resulted from people responding to the wild spirit of Christ. And at one point, a friend of ours, we'll call him Denny, because that's his name, shared a story that absolutely just ruptured my heart. And so I asked Denny if he'd come and share that with you all. So Denny, would you please do that? Thanks, Denny. The story uh, starts five years ago. At church here, we had an after-church class that was going to talk about or teach us about how our story matters. The idea was to encourage us to write our own story, but then also to share it with others so that others may learn from it. The class was led by a gentleman who I just started attending our church, and he had been to a weekend men's retreat where the entire retreat was about this subject. At the retreat, they taught him why it is important to write your story so that you can share it with others. He was not a friend of mine at the time, just an acquaintance, um, but since has become a very dear friend. His story was not the typical story that I heard in church growing up in West Michigan. The story he shared was about his struggles with alcoholism. He talked about how he had hit rock bottom, uh, family strife, and the consequences of his problem. He talked about struggles I had never encountered, nor did I think they were part of the church story. He talked about finally being free from the grips of an addiction. By God's grace, he had been set free. I have been in church all my life, and I had never heard a story like this in church. His story was different. The stories I heard in church were about growing up in the church, going to church twice on Sunday, going to Sunday school, cadets, Calvinettes if you were a girl, and memorizing the catechism answers so you could make profession of faith. His story was a new one for me. It was a story of redemption, God's grace. It showed how our God loves us no matter what. One thing I learned, my story was about rules, and his was about grace. Hearing his story has changed my story. So thanks for listening to part of my story. What I knew when, when Denny shared last week, what I knew what was disrupted in him, um, and I, I called our, our friend this week, and I thanked him again for how he shared his story with us because his story continues to impact our story because what that taught us, what Denny was referencing, what he knew then some five years ago is what we ought to know is this community, this church is not going to be the kind that gets dressed up to go to a church building, sing cute songs, and then have a potluck in the basement featuring ham buns and Aunt Lucy's potato salad. That's not our story. I have hope for so much more, and I trust you do as well. May we be the kind of community that's awakened, transformed, and sent by the wild, living hope of Christ. That is my hope. You don't have to be maniacal 
bouncing around. You might be a bit more presented outside, but inside, your heart has been disrupted, dislodged, broken open, and is now willing to be poured out. Are you with me? That kind of radical power is needed now more than ever in the church and through the church for a world that just has the question, can I belong? Can I be heard? When I come swirling around with my emotions, my physical trauma, my emotional, spiritual struggles, when I am suffering and hurting and I cry out or I meet you on the shore, what will your reaction to me be? Will it be, oh, we need you to leave our space? Or will it be welcome to our community? Grace and peace be with you. Would you join me? Gracious God, we bless you for meeting us right where we are, just as we are in our swirling mess. Whatever that may be, we all are recovering from something. We all need support with something or many things. God, my hope is that we have open ears, open eyes, and open hearts to your radical, wild, forceful love that is not forced on us, that we are just invited to experience and live into and live out of. God, may we respond to you with a yes. May we walk in your footsteps and be transformed and inspired by your love by your radical grace, your relentless mercy. Here's your church. Breathe into us your life, God. Amen.